Welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. I'm Josh Spector. I am your host. If you're new here, don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. It exists to help you grow your audience and business. This podcast, on the other hand, exists to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. Here's how it works. In each episode, a guest comes on and asks me three questions. We have about a 10 minute conversation about each of them, and I hopefully share some tips and advice that will help them and can help you accomplish your goals as well. That's it. Really simple, no fluff, lots of actionable tips that you can put to use and like to get right into it. Let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Leo Notenboom. Leo has been helping folks with technology since he first touched a computer in 1976. After an 18 year career as a software engineer at Microsoft, Leo brought his expertise to the internet at askleo.com, where he's been helping non-techies and techies alike with their computer problems and frustrations since 2003. You can join 35,000 others getting Leo's weekly newsletter, Confident Computing, at newsletter.askleo.com. And I have to say, I have known Leo for several years, probably five or six years at least. He was an early subscriber to my newsletter. He has bought and subscribed to paid subscriptions and products I've put out and all sorts of stuff. We've had lots of conversations about newsletters and all sorts of things. He's been doing this a long time. I trust his opinion. I appreciate his opinion. I'm really excited to have him on the show. So with that in mind, hey, Leo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Josh. It's really good to be here. I think that I'm probably also one of the few subscribers that you've met in person. We actually <laughs> yeah. made a yeah. point of getting together when I was down in LA a couple of years ago. So I know, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, that, that is definitely true. It's interesting now, like doing this podcast and doing more video stuff I st and, and the skill sessions I do now, I started to see more of my audience, at least face to face over right. a computer screen. And it really is different, but yeah, it was, you were one of the first readers that, that I had met and I was really glad I did. And I highly recommend anyone that's producing content or any of that, take advantage to meet face-to-face. -face. It really, it's really helpful and sort of changes your perception of what you're doing and helps you realize like, wait, there's actual people on the other sides of these things. So I Absolutely. think you had reached out to make that happen and I'm really glad you did. And here we are years later, and I know you've got some great questions for me that I'm looking forward to at least attempting to answer. So let's jump into it. What is the first thing you want to know? Well, what I'd like to know is how you reconcile investing in a platform that isn't yours. By that, I mean, th there's this term digital sharecropping, where a lot of people invest a lot of time creating content and posting it on a platform that ultimately they don't own. It's somebody else's platform. When that platform goes south, I think MySpace, I guess, would be a really good example. Yeah. They, and if they haven't prepared properly, they've lost what they put on that platform. I know that you're big on Twitter right now. Mm -hmm. Twitter's got an interesting future. Yeah, and yeah that's I'm one way curious. to put it what it is you're doing that ultimately protects you from the perils of posting or relying on somebody else's platform. Yeah. So this is a really good question. And there are some things I'm doing. And then in other ways, I think it's a general mindset I have. But it's funny you mentioned MySpace because I am and have been for years acutely aware of sort of the dangers of building on rented land, another phrase that people use all the time. And years ago, I was working in the comedy industry 
And MySpace, all these comedians had built massive followings on MySpace, very early social media era. And Facebook sort of was coming along, but it was kind of before all that. And this idea that like you could build these huge fan bases that could then get wiped out had never even really occurred to people pre MySpace. And so I watched all these comics who were literally building careers on the back of MySpace and their ability to sell tickets and stuff. And it kind of went away overnight. I am certainly not one of those people that's like, oh, just build on the platform and it'll be fine. You've seen it with Facebook, the way algorithms change. It is definitely something that I consider and something that I recommend everyone think about. I'm going to tackle this, I think, in a few different ways. And I want to start on, on sort of a, a more macro level. I think one of the key questions when it comes to building on these platforms is, I think it's important to ask yourself when you're using a platform, are you using the platform or is the platform using you? And the answer to that is almost always going to be both. But it is a spectrum, and I think it's helpful to consider where are you falling on that spectrum. And this applies not only to the building of your audience and your connection to them, but I also think it applies to how to your business and also how you're spending your time, resources, and attention. I think it's a really helpful question to ask yourself occasionally. Like, I love Twitter, but I will occasionally ask myself, am I getting more out of Twitter or is Twitter getting more out of me? both from an audience standpoint, but also from a time attention, is the time I'm putting into it worth it? And for me, ultimately, and this gets to the core of your point, I never view building on a platform I don't own as the sort of hub or main goal. My main goal is never Twitter followers. My main goal is never, I have a YouTube channel now, I want YouTube subscribers. My main goal is not YouTube subscribers. My main goal is always to build my email list and newsletter. That's the hub of what I am building. So I think for me, what I recommend, and I, that's the same approach I recommend for most people, it's really important that everything I'm doing is optimizing for that. So I'm going to use Twitter. I'm going to use YouTube. I'm going to use some of these platforms. But ultimately, it's to drive into the stuff that I own. It's not just to build the follower count on those platforms because you are vulnerable. The other thing I would say is this also extends to website. I've always had my own websites on my own domains. I might use WordPress or that kind of thing, but I would never have Substack be my website. I would never have Medium be my website. These things that I don't actually own. And yes, you can always export stuff and all of that. But the to me, when it comes to website and email list, I want control and, and the ability to own those spaces. And that's going to be my priority. Everything else in my mind, and for me, it's Twitter and YouTube now a little bit, everything else exists ultimately to attract people to me and drive them into my email list. That's why you'll notice if you look at my Twitter bio, it's all about driving people to subscribe to my newsletter, because that's really what I, that's really what I want. I am using Twitter because it is a place that I can connect with people and a place that I can attract new people. But ultimately, the goal is not for them to follow me on Twitter. It's for them to come into my email list and my newsletter. Another thing is I think about this is it's really important to understand with all these platforms that even if the rug's going to get completely pulled out from under you, like MySpace, and it's just going to disappear, these platforms are constantly changing. So it's not necessarily an all or nothing. Twitter and Elon Musk is a whole other thing, right? 
But am I really worried that in general, these social platforms are going to disappear overnight? Not really. But algorithms change. You've seen it with Facebook. Organic reach on Facebook, nowhere near what it once was. The types of content they reward. If you were on Facebook primarily doing written posts and now Facebook really wants to show videos or Instagram, for example, Instagram wants to show reels all the time. Did the rug get pulled out from under you? No, not really. You still have your Instagram account and your followers, but suddenly what they want to prioritize doesn't match what you want to prioritize. So I think that's the other reason to keep in mind that it's not just this all or nothing. There's a lot of shades of gray that could potentially be bad for you. And that's why it's important to build that connection to your own audience. The other thing I would say is that the danger is not, because I hear some people go the other way and they say, oh, don't use these platforms and it should all be your own thing. And I think that's extreme, too extreme as well. The danger is not in using these platforms. The danger is getting overconfident about what you're building on them. You see these people who have built huge audiences because they posted a few threads that went viral on Twitter. And the danger is believing that's always gonna be there or that's always gonna work that way, right? That overconfidence is the real danger. On the flip side, it would be foolish to ignore these platforms at this point, right? There are opportunities there. I do think a lot of people use too many platforms and you don't need to be everywhere. So I definitely recommend sort of focusing on a single platform and you'll grow faster that way than you will spreading yourself too thin. But the way I think about it to sum this all up is I'm not building on rented land. I'm handing out invitations on rented land for people to come hang out on land that I own. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing on Twitter. That's where people are. So I'm going there. And my hope is to meet and connect with people and say, have some of them come back or come back over to my place. So does that make sense? I'm curious. You've obviously been around and seen a lot of this for years as well. How do you think about the sort of dangers of being platform dependent? The approach you're taking is, it makes total sense. And ultimately, it's something very similar to what I've been doing, although in a different space, right? Mm -hmm. Ask Leo started out primarily as an SEO play, mm -hmm. search for questions, answers to their questions, and I would show up in the results. But just like Facebook or Instagram or whomever changes their algorithms, well, Google's been changing their search algorithm yeah. years, right? Yeah. And we would live and die sometimes by just how much they changed, how much the re most recent change affected mar our content, how it was produced, how it was published and so forth. So yeah, one of the things that I've been doing as well is improving or increasing my call to action on every article that asks people to join my no. newsletter. Yeah, so. it's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned Google because that is, that's, I think a lot of times the search piece of this doesn't really get talked about when people start talking about depending on other platforms. But you're right, Google and search engines, as much as any, maybe even more, are constantly tweaking. And, and yeah, can it people can be very vulnerable. Of course, yeah. right? This yeah. is how I acquire the majority of my readers. So yeah. it's important for me to understand that if I were more about Twitter, if I were more about Instagram, I'd be thinking differently about their algorithmic changes as well, for yeah. sure. Cool. Great. So let's get to your second question. What's the next thing you want to know? Okay. This time, I'd like to know, how do you decide when to stop. I know that you've had a number of projects over the years, mm -hmm. like that I've been paying attention to you for some yeah. time. And there's been a lot of things that come and go. And as an entrepreneur, I've got that same struggle. I yep. have projects, I have things that I've started. The problem I run into personally is I now have customer expectations. 
Occasionally there's money involved. Occasionally it's just subscribers. How do you deal with basically telling somebody you're not going to do something anymore that they signed up for? How do you decide? Yeah, the again, a great question. And it's it's tricky. And especially I think for people like me, and I assume you, and I think also a lot of the people that listen to this show are the kind of people to do a lot of things, see new opportunities, want to try and start new stuff. And it's very easy for us to fall into the trap of taking too much on, or we try something and maybe it's not quite working, or maybe we decide we want to go in a different direction. And yeah, pulling that back and stopping is hard and even harder to your point when there's money involved, when there's paid subscribers. One of the things that I didn't think about when I started, but I do think about now is it's great selling annual subscriptions all the time, but that also means you're on the hook for a year. And the truth is, and I'm not anywhere close to shutting down my paid subscriptions because I'm happy with how it's going, but it does occasionally strike me that if I decided I don't want to do this anymore, I'm going to probably have to give back. This is my own personal choice, but I would have to refund a bunch of money. What I had not thought about before is the more successful I get with those subscriptions, the higher the cost of quitting becomes. And so somewhere in the back of my head, there is a little like this could potentially be dangerous somewhere down the line. Like you keep becoming more and more successful, which is great. But this is a sort of ongoing commitment that you can stop whenever you want. But if assuming you're going to give people refunds, you're going to start having to shell out a lot of money to actually stop. So that is not something that I have solved at this point, although it hasn't yet been a problem, but it's certainly in the back of my head that it could be. As far as how I think about stopping things, one quick plug, I did an episode recently with Roger Nairn, I believe it's episode 15 where I talked about avoiding burnout. And one of the things I talked about was I try to have a policy where when I start something new, I stop something old. So that can help in terms of making a decision because it becomes a forcing function of, oh, I want to do this new thing. What am I going to take off my plate as opposed to just adding on? So that's easier when it's not a, when it's not a paid product, but that's one thing is sometimes it's a matter of just I got to stop something. And this is the lowest hanging fruit. Right. Um, as far as paid stuff, as because you've been with me from the beginning, I've had a paid subscription product that I have transitioned into sort of a new product multiple times over the years. Just for context and background for people who haven't been around me that long, it was originally a product. There's something even before this, but the first sort of real one was a product called the Creator Accelerator, which was a paid community in a series of weekly emails with exercises for creators to do. That then morphed into a, I got rid of the community and morphed into a paid newsletter called This Is How I Do It where it was a weekly email where I gave a sort of behind the scenes look at how I do something. And then that ultimately morphed into a very different product, which is the skill sessions video workshops, which I currently do now. Those are one hour video workshops that basically I do once every two months and people can subscribe to get all of them or buy some of them individually. You can learn more about that at joshspector.com slash sessions. Obviously, those are three very different products and especially the transition from this is how I do it, a sort of basically a paid newsletter into video workshops, really different. Each time I transitioned, I attempted to, or at least invited people to roll over into the new product. My hope was that the new product 
was bigger and better than what they had before and would help them in bigger and better ways. While it was a big shift in terms of what the product was, the end result that I was hoping to help people get was basically the same. So my hope was that most people would want to stick around for that. And if they didn't, I would give them a refund if it was a subscription, if it was an ongoing thing. But most people did stick. And the other thing I would say is when I, each time when I introduced a new product, typically because that product was bigger and better, the price was also more expensive, I let people stay at whatever their previous rate was. So that also, I think, helps people because suddenly they felt like they're hopefully getting a bigger and better product and also getting a deal on it because they had been in early. So I think all of those things certainly have made it easier for me to stop things that people are paying for. And essentially, while the way I deliver value has shifted and evolved, the people that I want to serve, creative entrepreneurs, creators, entrepreneurs, those kind of people, and the things I want to help them do, grow their audience and business, has remained relatively constant. So that makes it much easier, obviously. If I was transitioning people who, let's say now, people who had subscribed to my skill sessions, and I was like, oh, now I'm giving guitar lessons, that's not really... I could tell everybody, hey, I'm going to roll you over. But most people are probably going to be like, yeah, I didn't want guitar lessons. I want to know how to grow my business. So I think that's important. And if, but if I did make a drastic transition, right? If I did go from business advice to guitar lessons, I would just be honest and open about it and explain the reasons why I was making the transition. I would offer refunds when necessary or possible. I don't, I don't believe in, if someone signed up for a year subscription to business advice and they got two months of it, I don't think it's right to say, oh, I'm shutting this down and thanks for the 10 months you paid for it. That's not the way I operate. And I think I've found, as long as you're decent about it, like people understand. Like I said, most people that have transitioned, some people decided it wasn't for them. They didn't want videos. They wanted something else. They left. Maybe I gave them some refunds. A lot of times they'd ride it out till their subscription ended and then just not renew. But yeah, I haven't really had... I've never really had problems where people felt like they were they were ripped off or anything like that because you give people their money back it's it's not that bad although it does like I said before there it does create a cost when you want to stop something depending how much money you have coming in and committed and all of that so there that is something that hasn't been a problem for me yet but I could see how at some point could be not ideal potentially the other thing I would say though I come from a place that is very audience first, right? Very all about providing value to audience, free, even free audience, let alone paid customers, right? That is my, that is definitely my viewpoint. It's my take on content that like, I'm not creating content for me. I'm creating content to provide value to others. Doesn't provide value to others, then what's the point? That said, when it comes to this, I do think it's really important to understand that whatever you're going to do or offer, especially when it comes to paid products and commitments, it has to work for you first, right? And I can't be doing a paid product that I don't want to do for whatever reason. I'm burned out. I don't like it. I don't have time for it, whatever, just because other people like it and find it valuable. This is one of the areas where it's, I don't want to get, I think it's important not to get trapped into that. Like you, you have to be able to feel like if I don't want to do this for whatever the reason is, 
I have the ability to stop. I can stop at any time. It might not be easy. I might have to give refunds. I might have to whatever. If you don't remember that, you can get yourself in a really damaging, stressful situation. And understanding that like people will understand if you want to stop for whatever reason, as long as you don't screw them over, as long as you don't just take the money and run, whatever, they'll understand. And so that, that helps, I think, with stopping something, knowing that I can cancel anything at any time. They're just things that like anything, right? You can do whatever you want. There may be costs that come along with that, financial or otherwise, but I'm not trapped and not stuck. But So I'm curious because from your perspective, as someone who has been a customer of mine and an audience member and who's been through these transitions, and obviously you've stuck with it. And I think as far as I know, you've found it helpful, but maybe talk about that a little from your perspective of what you would expect, not even just from me, but just in general, like the perception of someone who has paid for something and then the person stops or whatever. How do you see that? Each time you've made one of these transitions, the best way to describe it is it simply made sense. <clears throat> Clear that you were doing the same thing, but in a different way, in a different <laughs> way that eventually made more sense for you, which, as you said, it just makes it easy to, to mm-hmm. bring along, but still get value out of it, even though it's in a different form. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, besides wanting to support individuals from a customer's perspective, as long as I'm getting value, even if it's in a different form that still works for me, I'm happy. Thanks. I think the other thing I would add to that that I think is interesting that you said that I didn't mention was if you frame it as in my intention is, and I think hopefully you pick up on this, but I think my audience does, when I'm stopping something or shifting to something else, it's always because I think that I might be wrong, but I always think that it's an attempt to make that better for the audience. I think this is going to help you more than the way I've been doing it. And I think messaging that is really important because I do think there's people that stop things and go, oh, I'm not doing this product anymore because it was really burning me out and it was a pain in the ass. It's really different. Even if that's true, it's really different than to go, hey, I'm going to do this other thing because I think this is going to help you more. The feedback I'm getting that, yeah, what I've been doing is good, but I think this is going to be better. And even if you're wrong, I think people respond well to feeling like, they're actually are taking their interests to heart and want to help them more. One of the struggles I'll call it is that's a great generalization of your audience. I'm sure that the the vast majority of your audience, just like Mm -hmm. mine, understands what you're doing, why you're doing it. And that as change in the approach continues to add value for them. That's not true for everybody. Unfortunately, for example, one of the things that I'm in the middle of is a transition from writing books to providing online courses. Mm-hmm. And some people love books. Yeah. Some people love courses. So I'll yeah. be, it'll be, there'll be a different organ, a different customer base that's going to be attracted mm-hmm. to them. No matter what you change, depending on your audience, there's always going to be, I'll call it a little bit of fallout. And I think you're right. The yeah. messaging is key to minimizing or at least having people fall out in a positive way rather than yeah. in a negative way. Yeah, it goes right back to the very beginning, right? That nothing you ever do is going to be for everyone. Whatever you were doing at first wasn't for everyone either. And so it's like you shift and yeah, you're exactly. Some people like books, some people like courses. One thing I wanted to mention is that there was a a podcast that I subscribed to, paid subscription. Mm-hmm. I was around for years and he decided to quit. And mm-hmm. we, I had paid a full year in advance. Yeah. His approach to shutting it down 
was to basically give a year's notice. He was taking payment and then kept the service going for everybody. Yeah. Until that last person had actually gotten their full value out of their year's subscription. So that was another way to do it without necessarily having to actually shell out money to terminate the project. Yeah. You just have to keep doing it for a year after you don't want to do it. Or whatever your longest subscription term is. But yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay. Let's get to your third question. What is the last thing you want to know? This is something that I like to ask people who've been doing things for a while. What I want to know is knowing what you know now, what might you have done differently when you started, whatever definition you want for start, Mm -hmm. not necessarily to say, beat yourself up for having made a mistake, Mm -hmm. but rather as something that you would give to your audience as here's a lesson that here's something I would have done differently that perhaps you could learn from today. Yeah. The first thing I'll say is that it's interesting because in thinking about this, at times it's hard. It's a hard question to answer if you're someone who I don't have a lot of regrets, right? So in, and I don't mean that to say, oh, everything's perfect. Far from it. Like I've had plenty of, I had plenty of failures, but I don't have a lot of regrets. Right. So what I mean by that is I think that a lot, when I think back to what I did, there's not a lot of stuff that I go, that was a mistake. I go, oh, that didn't really work. But the lessons I learned from that helped me get to this other thing. So there's not a lot of stuff that I would quote unquote undo or completely do differently. But that said, I do have, I'm not, and I'm actually going to give you things I would have done differently in three different areas. So clearly I have plenty of stuff that I would have done differently. And a lot of this is based on stuff that I learned afterwards. This evolved after that and went, oh yeah, that's a better approach maybe than before. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what I would do differently on Twitter, what I would have done differently with my newsletter and what I would do differently as a consultant. So first, what I would have done differently on Twitter is a couple things. One is I would have focused solely on Twitter and not messed around on Facebook or Instagram or multiple other platforms. One of the biggest things I've learned, and I say this to people all the time, especially when you're starting out and you don't have a huge audience, you're way better off focusing on a single platform. To succeed on any of these platforms takes a lot of time and effort and energy and engaging with people. And the to do that right you really need to focus whatever time you have to spend on it on a single platform when i eventually and this was years into it did that when i eventually said you know what forget this posting on facebook and instagram and all this different stuff i'm just going to focus on twitter that's when my twitter audience really started taking off the other piece of that is and this is related the reason it started taking off was because i was able to engage with more people I was able to take that time that was being spread across multiple platforms, focus it in one area. And then the other thing I would say is around that same time, I focused my tweets really only on my specific topics and niche. I was no longer tweeting random stuff about some TV show I watched or what I thought of the basketball game, or even though the majority was always about my niche of sort of audience and business growth, I went from maybe 80% audience and business growth and a couple of random things to only audience and business. thing. And the combination of that focus with all my time being focused on that one platform 
is literally when my Twitter started growing. I had been on Twitter since whatever, 2007 or a long time ago. And for years, it didn't, I didn't really get much out of it. But as soon as I did that, it really took off. So that is definitely something I would do differently when I think back to it. As far as my newsletter goes, the thing, and there's, I have an episode about this where I talk all about my newsletter ads and introducing them. We'll put a link in the show notes. But the thing I would have done different is I would have launched ads in my newsletter much sooner. I strongly believe for the first four to five years of my newsletter, it was a long time. I was publishing every week. All that time, I had a premise and a belief that ads were inherently bad for readers. I had an idea that the, and truly believed that the incentives were misaligned, that they would annoy readers, that I'd fall into the trap of catering to advertisers, which would make the newsletter less enjoyable or less valuable for readers, was strongly against them. And then when I eventually shifted, and I talk about this in the other episode, but long story short, one of my readers reached out said she had run an ad in a similar newsletter and it was really helpful for her. She got all this stuff. Did I know anywhere else she could run them? And I came to realize that, oh, these ads could actually not only help my readers who might want to run ads, but help my audience if the ads were promoting things that were valuable to them. And then I started experimenting with it, starting to run the ads. They've been fantastic. My audience loves the ads. They've become a really great source of monetization for me. People love running them. It's been a like win, win, win on every level and 180 degrees from what my initial beliefs were. That isn't to say that I would have necessarily launched the ads right off the bat, because I do think you want to sort of build an audience and figure out what you're doing for first, right? But I definitely would not have waited four or five years to do so. And then the third thing is, that I would have done differently as relates to my consulting is it has to do with, I think, choosing clients and choosing the type of work that I would take on. I left a really good job and went out on my own as a consultant. And you don't know, maybe you're going to get fans, maybe you're not. So some of it was at first you take what you get and you figure it out as you go. But even with that said, relatively quickly, I got to a place where it was financially stable enough. It wasn't like, oh, I had to take anything that, that came my way. And I, there, not a lot, but there were certainly clients that I had a bad feeling going into it. Where I was like, this probably isn't, and not even that, that my work would not be good enough, but there were one of the red flags I realized. And again, this is only like a couple of clients, certainly not many of them. But I realized that at times there would be a client who maybe wasn't that familiar with me or my work. They had been maybe referred by somebody else. Their, their goals, the way I think about it is they weren't really interested in serving their audience. They were interested in maybe, maybe they had a course and they were interested in selling the course and they had no audience up to that point. They weren't blogging. They weren't using social media. They heard they could make a course and sell it based on their expertise and now we're going to make money. And they didn't have a, they didn't have that commitment or desire to really, they thought it'd be easier than it would be. And yeah, I could help you run Facebook ads and I could help you do whatever. But the truth is nobody knows who you are. You haven't created any trust or value or any of that stuff. And I knew that in the back of my head, like that was not a client that I should 
have taken on. I knew I could help them, but I also knew this isn't going to work the way this guy thinks it's going to work. And you can tell the kind of people that they're not really going to put in what it takes to do this right because they're not really motivated to do that, right? Like even the course that they created with the half-assed and, you know, bare minimum, whatever. So I would have done less of that. The other thing I would have done is for the most part, I think with consulting, there's the, or services, there's done for you. I could either do it for you or I could teach you how to do it. And which is more sort of strategy. And in the beginning, I was doing some of both. Ultimately, I realized I don't want to do the done for you work. I want to do this strategy. I want to help you show you how to do it. I'm not looking for you pay me a monthly retainer for the next 20 years while I manage your social media accounts or any of that stuff. It became very clear to me relatively quickly that I didn't want to do done for you stuff. But initially I was doing some of that, right? Oh, I can run Facebook ads. So I'll take on this Facebook client. Like, I can ghostwrite stuff, so I'll take on ghostwriting clients. It was very helpful for me, I think, to get clear in my own head that just because I could do that stuff doesn't mean I need to or want to take on those clients, right? And so that sort of done for you versus teaching you how to do it then became a very clear dividing line for me and it helped me decide, is this a client I should take on or not? And helped me even in talking to people, hey, this is what I do versus I can help you with social media. And they're like, oh, can you write my posts? Can you, what? I, no, I don't, I don't do that. So I think that's, those are the things that I would have done different on the consulting front. But again, with all this stuff, I don't know how I would have gotten to any of those places without sort of making those, without that evolution and making those mistakes. We're here because of the decisions and path we took and the great lesson yeah. learned and all that, but still those lessons learned can have value for others. Yeah. So let me ask you, as we wrap this up, I'll flip it around and ask you a question. You've had your newsletter forever. What, what would you have done differently? Started it earlier. <laughs> wait, wait. You have to tell people, when did you start again? I started Ask Leo in 2003, August the 10th, actually, of 2003, okay. when the first article got published. And I did not want to be a newsletter publisher. I don't mm -hmm. know why. I just didn't. Mm -hmm. So I relied on SEO, like we talked about earlier. Yeah to bring me people and I really didn't have anything to do with them other than show them an answer. It wasn't until two years later, at least 2005, when I actually started the news, what would turn into today's newsletter. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, the, that's my go-to answer. What would I have done differently? I would have started that the same day. Yeah. Or same day. By the way, I, it's, I love that you said that because I feel like almost any, I know I didn't answer that, but it's funny. I almost take it as a given for myself. I feel like almost any successful newsletter creator you talk to would say the same thing. They'd be like, I wish I would have started it earlier. Yeah, but now you, you become a parent until you realize you don't have a way to yeah. hang on to the folks that have come to visit you when Google changes their algorithm or when Facebook yep. changes their algorithm or whatever. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on. Tell people where they can get your newsletter, where they can check out your other stuff, where send them where you want to send them. I have so many things going on. Newsletter.askleo.com is the place to go to sign up for the aforementioned newsletter. Askleo.com is, of course, the homepage for my site. And leonotenboom.com is where I have links to all the other many different hats that I wear throughout the day. 
Cool. And for me, you can get my newsletter at fortheinterested.com slash subscribe. My skill sessions, which I mentioned before, go to joshspector.com slash sessions. If you'd like some individual help, I do coaching and consulting done with you, not for you. Go to joshspector.com slash consulting. I'm on Twitter all day at jspector. And if you'd like to come on the show and ask me three questions, I would love to answer them. Go to joshspector.com slash questions to apply. And that's about it. Thank you, Leo. Thanks everyone for listening, watching, et cetera. If you rate, review, you share it. I'll love you forever. Have a great week. I'll Thanks see you. Thanks for having me, Josh. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you.